we're talking about if-then-else switches today. I just got finished listening to a couple of hours of Randall Carlson on Joe Rogan's podcast. And he began to tell the story of how he had come to be interested in all the things that he was interested in. And uh, it harkened back to an event in 1969 while he was under the influence of psychedelics standing on the bluff overlooking a river in Minnesota. And he looked over to the other side and saw the matching bluff and realized exactly what he was seeing was the bed of a wider river that must have been formed with a whole lot more water than ran through the little river meandering through the valley at that time. Well, about a year later, around May of 1970, something similar happened to me in Sycamore Canyon, which is the headwaters of the Verde River, which is an odd little river that begins below the Grand Canyon and heads south into the vast desert where Phoenix drinks water these days. If back then I had taken a different route, I might have gone on to study geology and astronomy, but I got to thinking about it and I said, no, the reality is I would not have done that at that time because what happened to me in the Sycamore Canyon is I recognized how the canyon was growing and and being expanded by the trees and the roots that were cycling through lifespans and that someday that whole canyon would be filled up if we could figure out a way to get that low part down by Phoenix to rise up, if that valley were to rise up and some other mountains over the Kofa Range and the Wallapais and the Servats, mountains that are just scattered all over the place like little bubbles of lava that came up when the earth was being really stressed under those cataclysmic conditions that Randall Carlson has documented so well that uh, I can include him as one of the witnesses to my ideas that we do live on the wreck of a world. And after that world was wrecked, there were fewer humans on the planet than had ever been on the planet before. And every story that we have regarding the oldest history of man came from those survivors at that point in history where there was the lowest 
number of people on the planet. There was a massive die-off of flora and fauna all over the planet. The sea level was 400 feet lower. You could practically walk to Australia from Arizona by way of the Bering Strait, which was not so straight, S-T-R-A-I-T. It was pretty wide when the sea level was 400 feet lower. And Randall Carlson's got a good holistic way of looking at things. I, I'd like to get to know him a lot better. But just based on these couple of hours that I've listened to him talk, he's got the idea that the earth was designed to be a perfect sphere. with 660, the length of a furlong, which is associated somehow with a cubit, the measure of a man, which is the angel. And that's kind of a mysterious phrase, but it all works out because, you know, now we've got inches and miles and stuff. And, we know how to measure things and make mathematical correlations that come along and say, you know, people had to learn a lot of things merely by hunt and peck. But some stuff was known to the storytellers who emerged from little family clusters and groups who kept the stories alive all the way to now. And among all those stories, there's one that has especially affected me, which is the one that the Hebrew Bible rides upon, the story of the hope of Israel, the promise that was made to the first mother. And I was thinking about this concept of the mother gods that they find evidence all over Europe of these little fat women with pointy legs. The purpose of the pointy legs was so they could stick them down in the mud. And I could just see a group of women learning to tell the stories. They're they're little girls, and they're being told these stories, and each one of them is given one of these little clay mother goddess dolls. And when it's her turn to recite, they're all sitting around the fire. Most of this stuff is done in the wintertime, you see, teaching and things, because during the summertime, there is providence to be laid up for the wintertime when you can sit around and learn stuff from your grandmothers. So every time a little girl would begin to repeat her recitations, she would poke her own little clay doll in the floor right in front of her and it would be staring into the fire. And in effect, the child would ask for help from the little clay idol because it knew the story and she wanted the story to flow through her. 
And this was a ritual of a sort that happened under similar conditions in kivas and dark caves. I think most everywhere around the world around 14, 15,000 years ago. And as I'm thinking about how these stories were passed on and how the ideas that were forming and taking shape in these children's minds were intended by the storytellers to cause the children to live in a certain way, a way that had been established as the optimum way to live. That's what they wanted to teach their children. They wanted to teach their children how to stay alive and how to stay alive on the larger scale where human beings have to specialize according to their gifts, according to that which their heart desires to do, the knacks they were given, the yens they have. There needed to be all sorts of specializations and categorizations of men. And there were men who remembered that there had once been a time when men who wielded metal weapons were considered gods. There's stories left over, you know? So if we're going to go with this Hebrew story, we figure all the stories have got to come from those eight people that were on Noah's Ark. I don't think there was a lot of storytelling coming out of Cain and Shem and Japheth. They were probably working hard those first years after the Ark when babies were beginning to be born and and the women folk were beginning to establish their own territories, their own nesting sites. They were having certain things in common. They'd lived together so long that they were synchronized in their flows. But since the events, the catastrophic events that had happened, there was actually a slowing down or a speeding up or a tilting this way or tilting that way, kind of a stretching out of that perfect sphere with, you know, mountains and stuff bulging in places where no mountains were and canyons where no canyons were. The whole world that they lived in was basically not the same as it had been and how can you tell your children how it was and have them believe that you saw what you saw so i was thinking what would it be like right now and you know there's a bunch of people who have written books about this what if there was an emp and there was no electricity in the whole world had to reorder itself and people have given a lot of thought to how that could possibly happen but 
when you bring in the facts that guys like Randall Carlson know and kind of set aside the theories that are based on things he believes, which I'm sure this happens to everybody because it happens to me and I see it happening to him. Those things we believe change the way that we see the facts. I believe that's called confirmation bias. We want to be right, so we see ourselves right as we make plain to our own selves what it is we see or what it is we think we see. So, walking back and forth on my porch, realizing that I've got no sorts of credentials that are of any particular worth, and I don't know as much about parts of what I'm talking about as other people do. And when I put all the parts together, I know less about it than other people do. But I fancy myself a storyteller. But I was never told stories unless you count the fact that the stories were hidden in the stories I was told. And that's the way I think the world works. I think that the Bible holds keys that can assist man in imagining a world with no war without having a war to bring that world about. And I enjoy the privilege of playing with words and ideas that come my way out of nowhere and entertain me with thoughts about the way things work or could work if anything were possible. And if there's anything that I've been taught all my life, I have been taught that there are conditions under which all things are possible. Now, at one end of that spectrum, there are the people who add given enough time, and at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who add on with the idea of God that we count the most valuable idea thinkable. Those are the two extremes. Given enough time, as if time were eternal, it's not. There's coming a time when time will be no more, and what's left of us will be spiritual beings, and that's for sure. Of course, you can't say that you know that for sure unless, you know, you're privy to some inside knowledge. Perhaps you've been possessed of an idea that truly was there when everything was done. Perhaps you pursued wisdom until she caught you. And you stumbled onto this podcast just because it's fun to know you're not alone. I'll talk to you later, I think. Bye.